Yeah, I love that. From simple to defensible. Yeah, pretty much. That's a journey. <laughs> That's a really That's interesting a real idea. From yeah. simple- hey, folks, this is Michael Vizi from Amazing FBA Podcast for Amazon Sellers. I'd like to introduce an episode from our sister podcast, The E-Commerce Leader, which has got a slightly broader remit for all e-commerce sellers. In this deep dive episode, Jason Miles and I deep dive into a key e-commerce topic. Hope you enjoy the show. Many Amazon sellers think business growth is the same as sales growth. But if you're smarter, you know e-commerce businesses are sold as a multiple of profits, not of sales. So if you want to build a sellable business, you need to grow profits. And to grow profits, you need to cut waste and increase profitable sales. Our new quick assessment helps you identify your biggest Amazon profit killer and what to do about it. Go to AmazonProfitQuiz.com. That's AmazonProfitQuiz.com to get your free instant diagnosis. Welcome to the e-commerce leader podcast. In this fun episode, Michael is going to break down 10 powerful interviews he's done with top Amazon experts. Now, Michael, you've done over 500 episodes now on the amazing FBA podcast. That's gone on for years. When did you start? Years ago, I suppose, huh? I even lose track. I think it's 2015, September okay. 2015, that it really kicked off. And I think I did my first sort of attempt in July just to see if it will work. So yeah, I, I don't, however long that is, I lose track. <laughs> and you've interviewed some fantastic people over the years. Oh, yeah. And yeah, for sure. tremendous, you know, expertise. And your show is fantastic. If you search for anything related to Amazon selling or third-party selling or e-commerce, the amazing FBA podcast pops up on, on all the players, top of the lists everywhere. And uh, so it's really fun to be able to kind of mine the, the depths of the, you know, episodes, really kind of dig through what you've done. So we're just going to make this a listicle where we go down your list of, of 10 powerful business concepts. So let's jump into it. Why don't you share your first podcast guest? I guess you should give us the reference number, what episode it was in the Amazing FBA. And uh, so people can go check them out uh, as they get their interests peaked as you share about the ideas. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, just to um, slightly confuse the issue that I have a parallel podcast called the 10K Collective Podcast, which is more geared to the needs of the six, seven, and eight figure Amazon sellers. Amazing yeah. FBA is very broad. Yeah. Broadly speaking, though, it is more geared to some people who are earlier stages. So some of the stuff has got different reference numbers uh, because it's in two series. One is the, the sort of general Amazing FBA series, which goes okay. from naught to 500 or whatever it is now. And the other one is uh, series one, which is the 10K Collective Podcast. So then maybe we might skip the numbers and just ask people to put into the amazing find amazing fba podcast and then search by guest name is what i would suggest okay great it's going to be easier yeah let's, so let's I jump have, into it what's yeah. your first you know expert and the concept they shared and why was it so powerful Great. So the first couple of people that I had on as a, a pair of people, actually, uh, Jason, Jason, both real powerhouses in their respective fields. Jason Boyce sold on Amazon for, I think, about 17 years, now runs a, a really, really good agency. He got to eight figures in, in multiple years while he was selling with his brothers. Rick Cesari was behind things like the Lean Green Grinning Machine and the uh, GoPro camera and Sonic Air toothbrush. So he's actually got several products to over a billion dollars in sales with a B. So he was really one of the, the movers and shakers behind the whole kind of 
what do you call it sort of jvc i try tend not to watch it myself but the tv programs where they sell you stuff and very very effectively that's the one yeah (laughs) yeah so obviously um the real powerhouse of the marketing thing but really the first concept so these are by the way 10 concepts a couple of the guests are giving me i think a couple of concepts Uh, the first concept is really about the nature of selling on amazon and really there are two powerful things that uh, jason boy said from bitter experience sometimes some good experience first thing is amazon is not your cuddly friend they're a shark (laughs) and the second thing is as he says if you're not on amazon you're not on the internet now that's a very challenging thing to say to a shopify store owner but that's his contention and there is some logic behind it and there's also some strong discussions to be had but i think those two things are very thought-provoking starting points at Mm -hmm. least for how one should therefore operate and i broadly speaking i suppose what he's saying is his experience and it's very very amazon centric so i have to take that in context is that you have to be on amazon but you have to be very aware of what you're doing and the fact that you're swimming with a shark and therefore you know act appropriately i.e., defensively and have a defensive strategy swimming with a shark that sounds dangerous it does Did he have some scary stories and all that kind of thing about why he felt like amazon was not your cuddly you know blanket of warmth and happiness in your business (laughs) yes he did i mean broadly speaking a couple of things i mean first of all if you're reselling stuff then one of the things and and i don't think this is going to apply to you and your your replays guys necessarily because i think that that big dynamics probably happened already but one of the things is if you're reselling stuff amazon will try and go and approach those guys and and uh, form a relationship directly jason's defensive strategy it's like a sort of arms race and and because he sold for 17 years you can really see the trend which is the second thing i was going to talk about yeah. The, the second point that grows out of this but just to answer the point of how to defend yourself when amazon started going to his wholesale or replans contacts and reselling the stuff he was reselling directly cutting out him out as a middleman he would create exclusive products so he mm-hmm. wasn't the private labeler but the manufacturers he was working with would create exclusive mm-hmm. products for him which yeah. is an interesting halfway house and then amazon would either go to them and threaten to kick them off the platform they didn't sell direct to them or possibly just start private labeling their own version then he wow. moved over into private labeling and amazon just sort of started copying the basic products uh, occasionally although it's harder to do would go direct to his competition his sorry his manufacturer in china although that's hard to do and then really what it came down to is a defensive strategy there's good news at the end of this horrible tale which is that amazon is horrendously bad amazingly and kind of almost hilariously at listing stuff on their own platform if you ever sell directly to amazon and i would tell everyone never mm-hmm. ever to do this what they'll do is you'll take your nine beautifully produced images and replace them with two images on white and horrible boring bullet points so that is where our opportunity is and they're still terrible at selling on amazon amazon is terrible at selling on amazon weird thing to say but their listings stink and therefore that's our opportunity is to just okay. be fantastic at branding of course particularly visual branding mostly photography and nowadays it's video as well. Wow, love it. Okay, so that was guest number one and and, and two, Jason and Rick, and yeah. concept number one. And then is there the second concept from, from those guys? Yeah, I mean, really, it's not so much a concept as my observation uh, or my, you know, experience if you like through them of the journey so i was i've been selling Mm -hmm. on amazon since 2014 and it's changed a lot in that time but i think jason started in something like 2003 so he's really had i mean pretty much from the earliest days that you could actually sell on amazon as a third-party seller so he's really seen the the whole trend and that of course is within the amazon space it reflects quite a lot of the the broader e-commerce space as well and i think really as i've described the sort of defensive strategies he's had to make thus i would suggest that the the 
I suppose there's a parallel between, if you like, the history of Amazon and what people did to make money as third-party sellers and the sort of business models that I would suggest people go through in order to start with something simple but end up with something that is defensible, I guess. And that's the journey that Rick was... Sorry that Jason was forced to make. Interesting. And yeah. um, that really comes from, you know, simply reselling and the sort of retail arbitrage, online arbitrage or wholesale sourcing type thing through the, as I've mentioned, the getting exclusive products made for you mm-hmm. through, you know, through proper wholesale relationships and replan sits somewhere in between, I guess, retail arb mm-hmm. and online arb and, and wholesale. Sure. So it's an interesting part of the journey to make but i would suggest also if you really want to create a defensible business you're going to eventually end up pushed by the dynamics towards private labeling and or sort of unique products which costs wow. more money but is more defensible and the business you create thus is more sellable so it's a sort love, of journey yeah i love that from simple to defensible yeah pretty much that's a journey that's a really <laughs> that's interesting a real idea. From yeah simple it's a big defensible. journey obviously because yeah. simple is simple to start and mm-hmm. i think you know, and I, I know that your philosophy is like this, and I think you're much better than me at, at this, which is to keep things simple. And you have that that knack of that sort of, you know, I know you're from California originally. You've got that California optimism and, and an American optimism more generally. And, and that's a fantastic <laughs> thing because otherwise you can overthink yeah. and never start. And I did that for like 15 years of my life right. uh, before I really got started in, in business online in, in, in uh, the end about the age of 40 and it took 20, 15 years. So the nice thing about reselling is you just start and it costs you yeah. 100 bucks, 200 bucks yeah. to start and you learn stuff very quickly by doing which is fine and it's great to start with things that don't scale which is nearly a concept that i i brought in from will chernan but the context was too complicated he said start with things that don't scale which is great but equally if you do something simple it's easy for other people to copy so it's not defensible so start simple with the understanding that you're going to need to develop and that's great if you start complex you never start if -hmm. you stay simple it's not defensible and you'll do that horrible thing where you go round in circles working really really hard and wondering why i'm making less and less profit over time rather than more and the answer Mm -hmm. is because your business model isn't defensible i love it man i love it so the third concept is from a guest dylan who who's dylan and what's the third concept so dylan frost is part of the wholesale formula those are guys dylan and dan they're both kentucky boys i doesn't mean that much to me except that i've watched i think was it called faithless or something there were some 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 tv shows which means i know nothing about reality of kentucky life but they seem sort of very feet on the ground kind of guys and they built businesses up. they didn't have a lot of money to start they started with arbitrage on and retail and stuff and they've developed through to mostly focusing on wholesale their clients i think have done they've done themselves they've had sort of eight figure years sort of 20 million a year plus uh, revenue and their clients have collectively done i think over a billion dollars in sales now so they, wow. they really know how to teach this stuff yeah. and dylan was talking to me about really the difference between private label and wholesale and i think it's really important in the early stages there's the keeping it simple and then there's a conceptual framework understanding of the context and there can be it to, to that point which seems to be another theme that's emerging organically is simple versus complex i mean i think it's important to understand have a bit of context as to what is it you're doing? What business model are you actually operating? And that's okay. You don't need to be too complicated. But if you think you're driving a go-kart and you're driving, you know, uh, a Porsche, the driving style is going to kill you. So you need to be clear at least what it is you're doing. And I think the differences between private label and wholesale are very interesting because they have some similarities. I would say if you start with the easiest but least defensible online arbitrage or retail arbitrage now, online arbitrage maybe, 
wholesale is the next obvious step, which is that you are reselling, but you have, or replens is that sweet spot in between, right? Where mm-hmm. you get replenishable stuff, i.e. You, you don't have that tragic thing where you find a wonderful thing, you sell a load of it and you go back and you can't sell anymore. So it's the next natural step from replens. Private label is one of those things that you naturally end up getting pushed towards as well. And the wholesale formula guys do do some private labeling. So you don't have to be either or, you can blend them. And some of the people in my masterminds are blend a hell of a lot of wholesale, like yeah. to the tune of 10 million uh, bucks a year but are also adding on their own private label products because it turns out it's really, really hard to sell a wholesale-based business. So this is where that continuum, you know, fits. It's so funny you mentioned this one. I don't know if you watched my uh, my go-live into our replens group yesterday from my kayak in the middle of Lake Tap. Oh, yeah, I saw a bit of that, and I was really intrigued by the kayak. I thought, I've got to watch this, but I haven't got time. So Yeah, yeah, I did a live from my kayak, (laughs) and I did my conversation was called The the Long Game. And one of my... The things I shared as an encouragement was just understanding that your business model is not your business mm-hmm. and that your business model is something that you run like a vehicle. You learn to drive it and you go someplace and it's a good time. And it's just exactly what you were just sharing. So very, very similar to the, you know, Dylan Frost concept, I guess. Mm-hmm. And that is that you can certainly learn replens as a model, scale mm-hmm. it up, have a great time with it. Yeah. Automate the process, add team members, Really focus on your financials so you know exactly what you're doing. And then that frees you up to explore different business models. And that's a very common journey from wholesale selling to private label selling. And that, I guess both of those would be a step, not beyond, but just, you know, a, a, an incremental step, you know, after retail arbitrage or replens. And so it's interesting to hear the, the bigger, you know, sellers. That is generally a, a path to scale, is scaling with wholesale and then being safer, more secure with private label concepts. What I would say, yeah, that the, agree with uh, what you're saying. And I, I'm looking forward to watching that kayak video because even visually it was very resting. I'm like, oh, there's a kayak. It's very nice. What's Jason up to? So yeah. great, great marketing, by the way. Yeah. So to your points, yes, your business is not your business model. Very important. What I would say is your skill set and your understanding of context, which is slightly different things, but related are not the same as your business or your business model either. But the lovely thing is that your business can build on, for example, replan strategy and move mm-hmm. into wholesale. The skill set you need in terms of analyzing what's going on on Amazon is probably pretty similar. You've got stock yeah. management skill, you've got cash management, you've got people management processes. A lot of the things can be taken over, but some of the things will be different. And you need to be very aware what's the same, what's different. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things would be more the business to business skills, really the business to business sales skills, I think is what yeah. wholesale's all focused on. So yes, you've got a lot of things that are similar enough, that, but as long as you know what's mm-hmm. different, Yep. which is still very important. The, the only thing I would say about that is that the danger of, just because it's on Amazon, you think it's the same business model, the characteristics of the business model as an abstract thing, how the cash flows, what's defensible about it, what isn't. I think that abstract sense, you need to right. be very clear-minded about that. Mm-hmm. What to your point, really. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Love it. And of course, when people start to work on their private label products, that's when they do enter my uh, domain, if you will, in terms of Shopify sites. Mm. And it's always so fun. I looked on Udemy, I think I'm over 36,000 students now in my Udemy courses for all things Shopify related. And uh, so that that is a, you know, an incremental step and a journey towards more defensible strategies. Okay, so let's keep going. Your fourth business concept from your fourth guest was a guy, Kevin. What's his deal? Who, who's he and what does he talk about? 
Kevin King is a sort of giant of Amazon guru sort of teaching and stuff. I think he's a very, very sharp guy. I remember speaking to him about 2016 when he was doing really well selling on Amazon and a friend of, of a friend introduced us and he gave just, you know, value after value. It's just in tons of intensely great stuff. And mm -hmm. uh, we got off air and I said to him, dude, you should do consulting. And he said, nah, I'm making enough money for my Amazon course. And next thing you know, of course, um, somebody's got his, their hooks into him and he's been these days uh, being very much consultant plugged into the Helium 10 universe with Manny Coates thing okay. so he is a genuine you know expert in visual selling he's, he's been in the retail space for about 20-25 years now and on Amazon for quite a long time and the thing that he came up with he's always coming up with interesting concepts he's very got very much got his finger on the pulse but one thing he said it's a very simple thing around the product selection thing which is the absolute obsession of any private label seller or, or even more of would-be private label sellers the really established people are, by the way I noticed aren't, aren't obsessed with product selection they're obsessed with cash management and stock management management interestingly to which more later but this was really about what people call product selection now of course I, I think that's completely the wrong word I think it's market selection or more specifically keyword driven market selection okay and that's a very narrow way of looking at the universe that I think is in itself risky and I'm sure that Kevin would agree but he basically said instead of thinking about a, a sort of trying to dominate a very specific four or five set of keywords the wiser approach often especially in very competitive markets and most of them are competitive in 2021 and beyond is to go for long tail keyword things in other words he, he said if you're trying to get into a house it's going to be a lot easier there are a lot of doors and a lot of windows mm -hmm. as opposed to one main door which makes a lot of sense so instead of I'm, I always think of the most obvious examples are the ones that I spent hours working on with my clients and of course I don't want to reveal their keywords because everyone's paranoid about that but Let's say, for example, you're trying to sell an iPhone stand. You're probably not going to have a trillion words that aren't things like iPhone stand, stand for iPhone, smartphone holder, etc., etc. right? But that's going to be really hard to break into, apart from the fact that, by the way, don't do this at home. That's a horrendous idea on Amazon anyway. Although there are marketplaces where you can still uh, make money with those kinds of keywords, but not Amazon. But you could try and find something that has uh, a lot more ways in. I'm just trying to think of something. I don't have a neat thing mm -hmm. off the top of my head. But there are certain types of, of products where there isn't sure. a single keyword or set of keywords yeah. that neatly defines it. There are yeah. four, five, six obvious main keywords that could describe it. And then mm -hmm. there are lots and lots of smaller ones. And that's his basic concept. It's wise to go for that kind of product, mm -hmm. win the longer tail keywords, and over time work your way to winning ranking for the short tail keywords. And his name was Kevin King again. Kevin King. Did yes. he give any kind of tips, tools, or resources for doing is that helium ten or like what's the what's the tool set for finding those yeah, kind I of guess, long tail keyword opportunities? Yeah, I guess he would talk helium ten. But I mean partly it's just a question of, you know, trying stuff and then seeing what happens but I mean, that yeah. sounds very very vague but what i mean is in your journey through a bunch of keywords and product ideas you're bound to come across this in my experience you will come across some stuff that's just dominated by a handful of keywords mm -hmm. and it's pretty obvious who the big players are and it's dominated right. i mean you just there's not much point in going to these markets unless you have very deep pockets and a yeah. really great differentiation point and very very good quality suppliers as well i would say yeah but as you go along sometimes you'll find a market which is tempted to dismiss and i think that mm -hmm. at that point that's when you should actually switch on your your kind of you know opportunity meter and go Aha, hang on a second yeah and we've talked about that before in our prior episodes when we talked about total addressable market and the switchable uh total addressable market and the idea of looking for the non-dominated mm. you know niches and finding the, the, these niches that are just totally fractured and really don't have any dominant players now that might be a warning to you to stay out it might also be an invitation for you 
to build a brand in that space. Slight, slight nuance on that. I mean, yes, it does tie into that discussion. Well, I guess what I'm talking about isn't the the competition and how fractured mm-hmm. they are. It's about it's the, the search terms sure, and the keywords yeah. that the consumers use, that they aren't as incredibly unified and simple in, in one set. Sure. So it's a slightly different point. Yeah. Um, it may, again, be a warning sign because it's going to be a little bit harder to yeah. target in a simpler way, but it's more winnable probably. So Love it's it. broadly speaking a very similar sort of strategy to that that's been played on Google for years. And I guess if you have a blog mm-hmm. attached to your Shopify site, this would be a really standard thing as well, that you aim for the longer tail keywords and you try and rank for those. Mm-hmm. As such, you start to get ranking juice for the medium tail keywords, you start to target those, and yeah. you start to get ranking juice over time for the short tail keywords that really have the, the high search volume. Yeah, okay, so, great. It's an old school, but but important thing. All right. So your fifth business concept is from Stephen, somebody. What's Who's Stephen and what's the concept? Stephen Summers from Marketplace Superheroes. So he's really talking about, he's also a, a person who very much focuses on private label and product research. So I'm in a way, sorry to, to talk about it twice, but it's such a big obsession and important point that, you know, that's why I thought it was worth referencing twice. Really, it's about how you define success. And, and it's an important um, thing that actually can be very nebulous when you say, people often say to me, if they're starting off with a private label, product or even sometimes more established sellers haven't defined success and they just keep selling stuff because it has revenue but does it have much profit and and you know that, that kind of question so it really comes down to a, a meta concept which is defining what is a winner and there and then mm-hmm. a more straightforward concept which is their definition of a winner with private labeling is that it will double the initial investment within nine months which is actually putting the bar reasonably low but nevertheless it's quite a rational and and very measurable simple definition Double the initial investment in nine months. So yeah, if you so invested ten thousand dollars in your cost of goods hmm. to get it all going, you'd want to have twenty thousand dollars by the end of nine months. Yeah. Now I didn't have the discussion with him yeah. in enough detail. I don't remember anyway exactly what uh, he meant by initial investment. Knowing me, that's exactly the sort of mm-hmm. thing I'd pin somebody down on. So if you want to go and, and uh, listen, that the pro- the podcast is called Product Research for Amazon with Stephen Summers of Marketplace Superheroes. Not a very imaginative title, so you should be able to find it. So I can't remember what it meant by initial investment. For me, initial investment would be all the money you put in up front. So that would include the cost of goods sold, mm-hmm. that would include freight, that would include any mm-hmm. import duty, etc. Yeah. So I'd probably define it that way. There's not going to be a monster difference between the two. No, I love that. And I love the emphasis on making money. You know me, like, I, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I love the business models that have high, you know, return on investment. Mm. And so that's just what we focused on for a long, long time. And I do always worry, in a way, I don't know why I worry for other people, but I worry for people who have a high velocity, you know, sales business with no profit or or low profit they you know obviously can improve margins but if you run it that way for too long you get used to it and that's just a lot of hard work for a little payoff many times and so the models that can generate good solid returns i think are smaller frequently to run at a level that gives you a big payday and obviously, it helps you clarify what you're in business for, which is the bottom line. And, I, you know, I think those are important concepts and, and valuable ideas. So, Stephen Summers, that's great. 
Love that one. Yeah, and just to say on that, um, just to clarify, that is for private label customers or, or, you know, concepts, yeah. 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 And the other thing to say is, on the one hand, the one extreme is you don't ever worry about profit and and you're just saying, absolutely rightly, you have to make sure you get into the habit of doing that. And as you say, it is a habit. As as you said, choose the rut you're going to be in because you're going to be in for a long time. Remember that phrase from a podcast. It's a very, Mm -hmm. you know, everyday phrase, but it's really very true. Whatever habits you get into, good or bad, you're going to tend to stick, so you're right. Having said that, it is also a corrective to this insane idea that you can replace your day job in 12 months from a private label business mm-hmm. from scratch and mm-hmm. and i have had clients come to me who've had that promise made to them in 2020 which blew my mind in 2014 that was just about doable maybe so i think that doubling the investment in nine months yeah it is actually a very positive result but it's quite a humble sort of thing to aim for it's very realistic as well mm-hmm. so that's why it really struck yeah. me as really good wisdom as well yeah and i guess i should just tune up that one for one second with the understanding that if you're just starting out in day one or week one or year one on, on online selling, your first goal is to find something to sell and to get it sold. Yeah. And you'll learn in that process. And so after doing this for whatever it's been, 13 years or something like that for us, we just set the bar for ourselves very, very differently. We don't, that's not the goal. You know, after a decade of doing it, just making sales isn't the goal. But when you're starting out, just you know get something that you can sell learn the mathematics learn you know how to put together a profit and loss statement you know the cash you made and and the expenses you had and what happened at the end and do that on a monthly quarterly annual basis if you just go through that cycle for a year or two and you're learning the ropes you're in a great place and so i don't want to discourage people by saying hey you've got to have a super high profitable product from day one. It's not realistic frequently. And so I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, discourage people with my grumpy old man, you know, (laughs) old seller commentary. But anyway, I just wanted to make sure I said that. So no, good point. And in other words, I suppose to put it in another way, I think um, Seth Godin put this as often very, very well. He said, you've got to have a time and you've got to have a number. And you're going to stop at that time, that time or that number. In other words, if your business hasn't got to profit or cash flow positive or whatever mm-hmm. it is you're defining, profit is a good number, then yeah. uh, you got to stop. And I think you're absolutely right that people can, for a very long time, do this this trap. It's not so much no profit on Amazon because that is too soul destroying to keep going. It's when you've mm-hmm. got revenue and you've got profit, but there's not anything like as much as you think until you do the sums at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. That's kind of soul destroying. I've got a couple of clients in that situation at the moment, and yeah. I can see a couple of habits that they've got in their business. You adding, you know, too much overhead with staff too quickly, over investing in products of which the quality is fantastic, but the cash flow characteristics are awful, mm-hmm. etc. That I, I look at it, I think that's kind of tragic. If you're making five percent on a million dollars a year and you've got two business partners, very quickly the personal income from that is incredibly disappointing for the risk yeah. and effort. And yeah. that's where you're, you're absolutely bang on. That's the point in the process of business development where you really have to take stock. At the mm-hmm. beginning, equally, you, you should probably set yourself the opposite goal, which is make no profit for the first year or mm-hmm. begin to get into profit. If you look at yeah. the last three months in isolation, but for the year as a whole, it's loss making, but you've established yourself in a, mm-hmm. in a, a category and so forth. So yeah, you're yeah. right. It's, it's a nuanced business. Sorry, this is a great one to just keep camping on. For it a is, yeah. Before we get on to number six here, sure. but let me just say this final commentary. What you'll find over time, and I think, Michael, you probably see this as much as, as I do, is you work with a lot of clients and coaching and students and, and uh, looking at their sites and their products and how they do their business. You frequently will find very profitable small businesses 
that can be run profitably, but just have reasons why they don't get huge. And then you have bigger product opportunities that can be omni-channel, that can be huge, but are lower profit and can be no profit. And it's almost like like a different plant in your garden. One One will grow really, really high, but there's no fruit on the tree. And the other one is a shrub, but it's really fruity and it's got a lot of terrific fruit on it. And it's just two different businesses. And I think part of the process at the beginning of starting out is understanding what business your you know business model you've got and the the aspects of it. Yeah, I, you need to be clear about. Again, it comes down to business model discussion, doesn't it? it if a yeah. venture capitalist invests in something like Uber, they expect it to lose cash and yeah. lose profit and make you know make a loss, which are two separate things, by the way, for a long time. The yeah. question is whether they're in future they're going to get a massive payoff. Uh, right. And that's a risky approach, but at least there's a rationale to it. Right. What is soul-destroying is to do something where your intention was to make profit from about month six and you make no profit for three years. And that yeah. can be hap- that can be done alarmingly easily. And yeah, you're right. <laughs> and that makes no sense at all. Well, let's keep going on our list here. So your sure. sixth business concept is uh, three classic stock management errors. Who yeah. taught you that and what's that concept all about? This is a chap called uh, Marvin Harris from Ovals with a Z or a Z. And they, uh, he's a management consultant who actually he's got tons and tons of experience in this area. I don't think he's he's sort of prepackaged himself in a neat enough kind of way compared to Helium 10 or whatever to, to neatly say exactly what he does. But he's certainly very good at the sort of strategy behind sort of integrating things like your your customer expectations, stock management, that sort of thing. But we specifically talked about inventory management because for the more established um, players, and this is, by the way, very true, even more true, I would say, in online arbitrage or retail arbitrage or replans than it is for a private label seller of the same kind of revenue size. Because okay. I know friends of mine who, who was private label sellers would make the same revenue with 10 to 20 mm-hmm. product lines who would have to manage five 600 product lines as, as, as retail arbitrages. You so stock management is okay, really so the, important. So the stock management errors what are the three errors what are they? so the three errors the first one is general inventory uh, item errors so spoilage and location errors so location errors would be you think it's in warehouse a but it's in mm-hmm. warehouse b now mm-hmm. if amazon does a lot of the warehousing for you you could get lazy about it but as i'm going to talk uh, about it one of the uh, trends of 2020 that is definitely continuing into 2021 and i can see only being worse in q4 is going to be the the fact that amazon cannot cope with all your inventory needs so you're going to have mm-hmm. to be much more aware of where your inventory is it's going to be in more places if you're starting out it may be in a garage or whatever your bedroom and yeah. amazon but in the end if you're doing it at scale it's going to be in a third-party warehouse it may be a prep center particularly if you're reselling actually and uh, you know it might end up in lots of different places so location areas is kind of obvious but it's yeah. something you really have to see coming that if you're managing as a retail arbitrager 400 product lines yes. with three different locations for stock and then x number of units in each one you really really have to get on top of it and fairly early actually as well that's interesting location management of your product yeah uh, you know what to be honest, I hear about those things in my coaching conversations, and I've never had somebody stick uh, such a fine point on it. Hmm. So, three classic stock management errors. The first one is location confusion, I guess you could yeah. call it. Is it? What's the well, second he calls one? it general inventory item errors, which includes location. Okay. The spoilage as well, which is when somebody's okay. dropped something or your chocolate's melted okay. in Florida mm-hmm. or, you know, your your supplements yeah. have reached a sell-by date as well. Yeah. So there's that as well, yeah. which is, so there's just, once you get into inventory management, kind of unsurprisingly when you think about the business mm-hmm. model, mm-hmm. Uh, but we kind of forget that there's just a lot of work around that. And if mm-hmm. you don't have system mass, systems in place or at least start developing them early, yeah. 
you get in big trouble. So the second error is monitoring errors. So in other words, there's a system and then there's actually in the warehouse and it could be as simple as the system is you've got a spreadsheet on your computer and the warehouse is your garage. That's a bit more manageable, but the sort of blue collar approach to things could be really helpful, like go and get your hands dirty and literally check your inventory yourself once a week mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because you may find some big disparities. So that's, that's actually, I think a really horrible error because when you think you know something and, you, and it's wrong, that's when you can go into really big trouble. For example, if you were selling, even on Amazon, if you were selling items either fulfilled by merchants, you know, because FBA's run out of stock, you know, the Amazon warehouse system cannot accept more stock or refuses to accept it. And you make a promise to somebody by selling something on Amazon yeah. and you think you had 10 to sell and you make 10 sales on Monday and you go into your garage to go and fulfill them and you had eight. Guess what? You're going to have to cancel those two orders. And if you cancel several more orders that week, Amazon could even suspend your entire account because if you keep canceling orders, that really affects your order defect rate. So this is a very practical, very you know, yeah. potentially business threatening problem. And you just have to work really, really hard to, to work on this. And, and it's not an easy thing to solve, but it's just critical. So you've got to get started. Monitoring errors. That yeah. is so interesting. Two stories popped in my mind. I'm debating whether I should mention one. Well, I'll say it at just the highest level. Familiar with a recent story of someone who installed cameras in their warehouse, discovered theft was occurring mm. and had to deal with it and but the cameras was the first indication but then the monitoring of inventory and stock would have been a prior indication but it did you know it wasn't as bucked down maybe as could have been to reveal such theft that's interesting the other story that comes to my mind immediately as you mentioned this is we have a tool in the legendary seller toolkit that's a reimbursement process and many amazon sellers who sell at high volume amazon owes them money Oh, yeah. And there are services that charge 25% commission to kick off those re, you know, reimbursement requests. Our software tees it up for you. You do it yourself, and we don't take any cut. It's just a tool that we have available. And I I think you might know a lot better than I do, but surprising how many times Amazon sellers don't go through their reimbursement requests and say, hey, please give me my money. You destroyed my inventory. <laughs> I want my reimbursement, please. Yeah. Uh, and that's a monitoring error. I've never thought of it this way. This is gold, man. This is it. Really, really is. Really I'm mean, gonna tell you what. Yeah, th nobody really tends to talk that much about inventory management because it's not very sexy. Yeah. The people who do, by the way, I think I've had two guests and one who's teed up to be a guest to talk about refunds. Yeah. And there's a fourth guy who hasn't even mentioned it on the show, but his he does do them. And yeah, people will pay anywhere between twenty and thirty percent often. And then there's software mm -hmm. like yours that will yeah. flag it up for you. It's just huge. I mean, this is money that technically appears on your balance sheet because it's, it's your money but in terms of cash it's in amazon's account and not yours and it, it, for other marketplaces could be just as bad i don't have that experience yeah. honestly it could be a lot I, I had a seller friend who was this is two or three years ago when i think amazon was worse at this but was doing sort of about half a million bucks a month in in revenue and, and sort of in january probably in that q4 employed somebody full-time to get it and they had some like hundred and fifty thousand dollars that amazon owed him i mean if you're doing substantial revenue it can be a lot of money. It's really hugely worth doing. And it's quasi-free money, which is why you can justify paying somebody 25%, because it, otherwise it was just going to sit there. Technically, it's owed to you, and technically, it kind of would appear on a balance sheet, if you're aware of it, of course. Yep. But it's not in your account, so you can go broke whilst actually having a balance sheet accounts receivable of $100,000. So it's absolutely an easy win in the sense that it's just totally worth being 
absolutely on top of that and amazon's you know reasonably quick to refund you once you actually point out the error i don't yeah. think they're necessarily trying to defraud you i haven't got the information to even make an allegation mm-hmm. i think it's just they're managing just a monster size operation and they just don't get around mm-hmm. to paying people <laughs> we've looked at the stats for our tool it's in legendary seller and we have about a 50 percent success rate so when you kick off a reimbursement request 50 percent of the time you'll end up with money back and I don't remember the exact number of reimbursement total amount we've helped people receive, but it's a ton of money. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to quote a number because I'm sure I'll quote wrong, but <laughs> but it's a lot of money that people have gotten back by just going through the process. And I will just say this, that in your early days of online selling, if you're just starting out, you're much, much better off being methodical about your finances, Oh yeah, tracking, using a Google Sheet or an Airtable, really doing a profit and loss state statement, looking to find how to get a good profit and loss statement template, learning QuickBooks. In your first year, if you do all of that financial management, even though it feels like just drudgery and just like, oh, I hate this, <laughs> it's really, really valuable as you scale because you'll have the habits and the systems in place to say, oh, I always get my money. Oh, I always do a P&L. Oh, I always evaluate my expenses monthly and quarterly. I'm always trimming off dumb expense dollars that I don't need to spend money on. And my Mm -hmm. profit margin goes up, 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 up in my business because I do all these rigorous actions. That is how people make real, you know, real money from not that huge of sales, you know, from a six figure business or a, a low seven figure business, they make a wonderful living because they're locked down on their numbers. A hundred percent. And I agree. Absolutely. So two things. First of all, financial measurement and inventory management are absolutely two sides of the same coin. Because mm-hmm. if you think about mm-hmm. it from a balance sheet point of view, yeah. um, they are both current assets. So it doesn't actually change your profit and loss, whether something is stored as a widget or as cash. But cash is king therefore if you mess mm-hmm. up your cash flow your business dies mm-hmm. so you absolutely have to know what your where your stock is and whether you can sell it and the other thing to say is on the question of kind of coming back to this context that i sort of painted at the beginning which is that the bigger picture of which business model you're working on in a lot of ways private labeling or custom products uh, manufacturing is a much more advanced and tricky business model but here's one way in which you have to be much more grown up much quicker as it were as a business person in the stuff you were saying retail arbitrage you can end up with four five hundred six hundred product lines so quickly and being methodical about tracking those is loads harder yeah. like a lot harder than tracking five or six products that yeah, are private totally. label. So you, uh, yeah. to your point, I couldn't agree more. You have to just make yourself be rigorous yeah. and it's not that much fun, but guess what? Profit's nice because you can eat. <laughs> this is one of the biggest paradoxes in business is that some of the most entry level jobs, this is even true in your corporate career because I was in, you know, you know, office job for 20 years. Some of the most entry level jobs are the hardest jobs. And and the the more advanced jobs become easier and easier and easier if you have the skill set to do them. They seemingly become simpler jobs, and uh, it's just a paradox. And uh, but but all that to say, you've got to learn these lessons well about monitoring. Okay, so to recap, we're in three classic stock management errors. The first one was location and understanding. You keep using the phrase, I keep botching, but it's spoilage. Yeah, spoilage errors. Yeah. The second one is monitoring errors. What's the third yeah. error? 
third area, and by the way, <laughs> this is a, a huge area, right? But I've kind of bundled it into one thing. But yeah, this is this is where the grown-up people actually focus, whether you be starting out from new, as you were studying, saying, mm-hmm. or the, the private label sellers that I work with at scale. Um, the third one is count errors. So this is where the biggest numbers of problems and profits come. I'm afraid this is even worse than the other ones. Typos, for example, writing that the pro- you've got 1,110 as opposed to, you know, 110 or something. Information not being communicate, communicated in real time. So then the physical count and reporting systems don't match up and then wrong pricing on an item as well so the count errors generally speaking are you know errors in the actual information as opposed to difference between the real world and the the systems now that is perplexing to me but i guess it totally makes sense and i just reflect back on this um, keynote address we had from scott needham who's the co-founder of buy boxer who was in our 30-day replenish challenge he was a keynote speaker this last monday night And one of the comments he made was about this idea of testing your prices up as well as down and managing your repricers really, really carefully. And he said one error that he made in his business that was a huge mistake was he started selling $500 items for $50 (laughs) accidentally and liquidated stock at $50. Because it was a pricing error. So it goes yeah. totally to your point. So I guess Marvin knows what he's talking about. What these This guy really does. I mean, he's errors. not a name that's big in the Amazon world. I don't think he's really focused on that. But I, I, he's a very competent chap. I mean, he, this was really wow. a very, this is why I brought it forward. I think yeah. of all the stuff I brought today, it's probably the least sexy and it's going to require the most grunt work. And it's probably the most important to your business because wow. without getting this right. I and mean, he said that some some crazy statistics, inventory distortion across retail, in, in America alone is a $1 trillion a year loss. Wow. The average retailer in the USA has an accuracy rate. What do you think it is? Give me a percentage here. 80%? I'd kind of hope for that, right? Apparently it's 62%. Wow. Yeah. Now, how are you defining accuracy rate? He's got a lot of metrics, so maybe he's being a bit harsh. But, you know, in other words, this is a serious problem for yeah. people who, you know, manage big businesses. Hence why Amazon messes it up all the time and they give you refunds because Amazon's very meticulous. They have great systems. They are a systems and process obsessed company, I would say. They're driven yeah. by a physicist who works at Wall Street. He's obsessed. But nevertheless, it's really hard. Wow. So all you got to do is just increase that accuracy over time and, and starting small and being close to 100% accurate when you have a really small amount of inventory maybe gives you a fighting chance where you have a bigger set of inventory so it reinforces what you were saying which is keeping really accurate records from day one i would love to learn more about that marvin harris three classic stock management errors yeah Uh, is that the name of the podcast episode? the name of the podcast was inventory management and e-commerce with marvin harris of ovals with a z so yeah not not very exciting but but gosh yes so important (laughs) terrific okay let's keep going Hey folks, hope you've enjoyed yet another episode of The E-Commerce Leader. I certainly have enjoyed revisiting some of the really marvellous experts that I've heard over the last few years. And today, I think there's a lot to take in. I'm aware of that. And I guess that's the nature of a type of podcast like this, where you cover a lot of different topics. Some in more detail than I was expecting. And we've obviously deep dived into stock management. And Marvin Harris of Ovals with a Z or a Z was, uh, I thought, a very, very good guest on this. He's actually not particularly Amazon-centric. He's a consultant but has worked in retail. And as you can tell from even the second-hand information you've had from me today, really uh, a lot of grown-up stuff, as it were. And I, I use that's a very patronizing phrase. It's one of my many faults as a person and as a podcaster. And as a consultant, but I guess what I mean by the word grown up is uh, stuff that, by the way, I find hard to do, which is to say to be meticulous and to take 
your business seriously enough that it is robust and professionally run. So stock management is not something I've ever been a genius at, and a lot of my clients struggle with it as well. But it's very, very noticeable that more professional people who have it as their living and are building businesses to sell sometimes as well are very meticulous about this stuff, and it is really important. So do really listen to Marvin Harris's uh, interview with me on amazingfba.com if you get a chance, if you're in any way serious about scaling this thing up. The other things we've talked about, kind of in reverse order, we talked about the nature of Amazon selling with Jason Boyce and really mentioned Rick Cesari today because it wasn't the thing that, that particularly stood out uh, in the particular concepts I was trying to get across today. But Rick Cesari is a marketing um, genius. I guess really there were two things. First of all, the nature of Amazon selling and um, the fact that it's really tough and Amazon is a fierce competitor and the fact that you kind of, in Jason Boyce's view anyway, need to be on Amazon. If you're not on Amazon, you're not online, as he puts it. And the solution to that is really to gradually develop more and more unique and differentiated products. And we talked about the whole the the journey of business models from reselling through wholesale to brand building the more you get into the brand building world the more rick cesare's expertise is relevant which is all about amazing high quality direct response branding or in fact what he calls direct branding which is a blend of direct response like evc and indeed amazon is very much direct response selling and also branding work where you build up the connection with your brand and the feel and the price point and the quality of your brand as well. So again, those two, they wrote the, a book recently that they brought out together called The Amazon Jungle. Really, really worth checking out. The other guests that I referenced today, three other guests were Dylan Frost about the private label and wholesale business models and uh, you know the comparison of the two, the characteristics they have. And I think for those who are in Jason's replens system or in the earlier stages of moving through Amazon selling, that's particularly worth considering that. Also for the more advanced sellers who have got wholesale type sourcing arrangements and are moving into private label, also quite a few of my clients over the years, those also need to be aware of on a sort of macro level, the difference or the 30,000, 50,000 foot view, if you like, the differences between the models. Because actually of what I've found is that if you uh, do a lot of wholesale sourcing and you start doing private label selling, it you can be into habits that you're not even aware of because you've been doing them potentially for decades that are great for wholesale, but don't really apply to private label. And for example, the amount of brand building work you need to do as a private label seller is a heap more than just reselling other people's products. So again, Dylan Frost is the guy that I interviewed for that of The Wholesale Formula. I've also talked to Dylan Carter, D-I-L-L-O-N, different Dylan spellings just to confuse you. And I've also talked to Trent Deersmith, D-Y-R-S-M-I-D. So those three are the real sort of wholesale experts. If that's a model that interests you or if you're doing replens or arbitrage or something and you want to move on to the next level, those particularly would be good three, three guests to check out in the amazing fba sort of podcast back catalog which as we've said is huge now the other people that i talked to kevin king who is a very very big name in the amazon world and he talks about the fact that you should potentially be looking at product lines or rather marketplaces different keyword clusters i suppose that are driven by lots of long tail keywords. So you've got a lot of different ways into the house, as he puts it, lots of different windows. And that makes a lot of sense. That's a keyword strategy that's really applied in Google, really since, I guess, the early 2000s and is really relevant on Amazon now as it gets more and more competitive 
as well. Definitely worth, again, listening to pretty much everything Kevin King has to say. I think he's a very, very sharp guy, despite, I must say, him being a, quotes Amazon guru, because when I first spoke to him, he wasn't at all. He was an Amazon seller who was persuaded onto my podcast by a mutual friend. He's since come become to be positioned as a guru type by Manny Coates of Helium 10 primarily, and a very good trainer he is too. But, you know, even off air, away from the cameras, as it were, he's definitely a guy who totally knows his stuff. So the next and not least person was Stephen Summers, lovely, charming Irish guy, quite a different style and take on private labeling from Kevin King, but also very good on the product selection thing. And he had a rather different take on how defining a winner. And I think defining whether a product's a winner or not is a really critical thing that is is neglected or messed up, shall we say, by both people at the very early, early stages who don't even have a product live yet. And also by those who've been in business for several years, sometimes for a long time, and who are selling products that frankly don't hit any kind of success criteria, except they have some kind of revenue. And that's not really, in my opinion, quite enough. So let's just say that's a rabbit hole that goes deep. But Stephen Summers was particularly thinking about when people launch a new private label product. And really, his definition was pretty robust, which is that you double the investment within nine months of making the investment, which I think is actually both very sensible, reasonably robust, but actually putting the bar reasonably low compared to some of the, I I would like to think in 2021, old school, but still taught methods, which is when people make promises like you'll replace your day job within a year, day job of $100,000 in personal income or worse. If somebody's telling you that, I just think you've got to walk the other way. I'm so sorry. Yes, it's theoretically possible. It's not likely. I've seen somebody do that, but they did not invest the, the you know, $3,000 or something. They invested tens of thousands and it's a high risk strategy. So yeah, <laughs> defining a winner in a realistic way is great. I, I think that's the middle ground. I'm a passionate moderate. I'm a big believer in robust middle ground thinking. Claiming that you're going to replace your day job in a year if you're starting from scratch is, I think, rubbish and disingenuous, frankly, which is a polite word for other things. And then on the other hand, having no criteria for success at all can simply mean that you keep going forever. And, you know, at some point you have to call it. <laughs> so those are the concepts we talked about today. Coming up in the second part of this discussion are some wonderful psychological drives for image marketing from Daisy uh, Pollard and some great fulfillment ideas if you have to deal with outside the FBA world, the idea of fulfilling products yourself, working in your business, not on it, and some e-commerce trends for 2021. So stay tuned. As ever, if you've enjoyed today's episode, the first thing I would say is, well, obviously check out the amazing FBA podcast if you haven't already, because this reminds me, because I forget that there's an awful lot of wisdom in there. And that's not, I can say that not because it's not about me. It's about the experts that I've interviewed over the years. And there is a great deal of expertise there. A lot of it is very sort of time specific so i wouldn't start using strategies and tactics from 2014 directly which is when i first started podcasting 2015 i should say on the other hand there is a lot of evergreen stuff and it's particularly for the last couple of years very very important concepts that you can learn from these super sharp guys that i've had the privilege of interviewing so lovely to talk it over with jason today as ever don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you're enjoying it as in the e-commerce e leader and uh, don't forget to leave us a rating on apple Podcasts if you're on that platform as well thanks for listening thanks for listening to the 10k collective podcast for six and seven figure amazon sellers i really hope you found the show helpful to you 
Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave us a quick star rating. It will take you all of 30 seconds to do it, but it does mean we can be found by and help many more e-commerce business builders. I wish you fast and profitable scaling, and I hope you enjoy the process of building your seven-figure Amazon business. Thanks very much for listening.